This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. You are listening to Over and Back's Basketball Mysteries of the 1970s. Today's mystery is How did Dr. J go from being cool to square? Before we get to the show, I want to tell you guys about Fast Break Breakfast. It's a fellow Harvard Proxism Network podcast. If you watch League Pass every night but aren't listening to Fast Break Breakfast, you are missing out. It's what happens when you get two musicians and a comic who are overeducated, underemployed, but share an obsession about the NBA, 90s movies, and conspiracy theories. So make sure you subscribe to Fast Break Breakfast, a podcast for serious NBA fans that is incredibly not serious. Welcome back to the Over and Back Classic NBA Podcast. I am Jason, and with me again is the great Curtis Harris of ProHoopsHistory.com. Curtis, welcome back to the show. Always good to be back. And we are going to talk about the one and only uh, Julius Irving and his evolution and the team's evolution from being this incredibly cool, trend-setting, awesome dunk, this legend of the ABA that's obscured because they're they're not on television, but this guy who's, you know, still being told mostly through word of mouth to becoming the NBA establishment by the... Uh, early 80s and uh reaching a great team success with his teams by but somewhat doing it on a blend of his own terms and also with what you know the um the sort of this merging of the aba's ideals but with the nba establishment as well yeah i guess we could say dr j uh as we talked about him he could be seen as like the Good guy. I, don't know, I can't remember what the right literary term, but it's going to be like the allegory, the metaphor, whatever of the the NBA's like consumption of the ABA and you know commodifying it, commercial, well, not commercializing it, but uh, turning it completely for its own uses. Uh, so you know the renegade ABA becomes you know the business model of the conservative NBA by the end of the eighties. So. Dr. J is the, the vehicle to tell that story, I guess. Yeah, I, 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 that's uh, that's a good way of putting it. There's a um, there's a quote from um, Mark J- Jacobson wrote a piece in Esquire in February of '85, and uh, there's a quote from um, Dr. J just talking about like how he's had an effect on the game, and it, it's part of a longer piece of just you know the, the things that he has done to um, you know affect the style of the game. But the the most important thing he said was uh, to make this kind of basketball a winning kind of basketball taking into account a degree of showmanship that gets people excited my overall goal is to give people the feeling that they are being entertained by an artist and to win uh, then he laughs and says you know the playground game refined which i think is a, a sort of a good way of um uh, d- defining kind of where he brought where he helped develop the game first through his years in the um aba and then of course later on in the uh nba so um 
you know, I, I think the things that made him this just this really the 70s icon of cool of this first and foremost, his, you know, incredible trend setting dunks, the ones that have been seen, but the many more that have been uh, told through legend that, you know, are unseen because they were unrecorded. Only people there, um, you know, can, t- can say exactly what he does. But all these descriptions of these incredible, fabulous moves, whether they're dunks or whether they're, you know, these uh, uh, twisting layups around backboards or around, you know, three players, that kind of thing. Um, and just the obscurity of his legend in the ABA in general, just, you know, it adds to, I mean, he, he, he has this, just this great image. He's this handsome guy. He, you know, has, has the wonderful looking Afro and, you know, the wonderful seventies clothes, but, you know, even more so are just the, you know, what, what we don't see is almost better than what we do see. Yeah. I mean, you look at, I mean, taking it way back to the beginning, like, you know, the, it's just like this legend of Dr. J. Like, who is this Julius Irving? Like, uh, when he went to UMass, people basically just got him up there like, who's this Julius Irving? They're like, oh, my God, this guy can really play. And then when he goes to the Virginia Squires, the coaches there are like, yeah, hey, he can't be as good as people said he was. They're like, oh, my God, he's better than they said he was. Like, you, just when you look at his stats, like when I break up his stats on, uh, you know, Twitter or whatever, mission he get, it's like, y'all realize Dr. J averaged like 27 and 16 his rookie year at ABA. And it's just like, there's hardly any video of him with the Virginia Squires his rookie year. So, like, you just have to imagine, like, what is it like for this, like, scrawny small forward who could jump out the gym to get 27 points and 16 rebounds a game? Um, and then as time goes on, we start to get more film of him, and then we get to, we get acclimated, we see the great moves, but as you, you've said so well, it's essentially like, you know, the, the man, the myth, or, you know, the myth, the legend, solely becomes demand. And, like, by the end of it, we know exactly what he is, and we've seen it all, and it's every little bit of it is recorded. Um, so I think it's kind of fitting that he began in this era where hardly any games are recorded, then by the end of it, it's all recorded uh, for all intents and purposes. We see every single one of his moves. But as good as they were in, like, 1984 and 1986, is this is the stuff like 72 and 76 that really get people's imagination because we don't know exactly what was going on there because we don't have the film. Uh, to see exactly what kind of moves he was pulling off every night. Yeah, and um, there's a great there. There's a, a couple of uh, great photos of um, of him that, that that sort of tell the tale. And there's one of him at his uh, first uh, Philadelphia 76ers press conference, and he still has the afro. He has this like. Um, uh, he has this great this gray jacket on underneath it, and then he has this big collared um, like patterned shirt with all this like brown and orange and gray, and is just you know is just totally looking like he's still like a young man. Another one that's a you know, publicity photo with him and Michael Jordan, and he's wearing this he, he's wearing sort of this like tan um, uh, sport coat, very very eighties this this uh, skinny um, brown tie. <laughs> And he has a, you know, one finger on the basketball and Jordan has his other finger on the – Michael Jordan is in the photo and he has his other finger on the basketball. And it's just a very – like this, it's, it's very much your dad, um, you know, in, in the yeah. second photo. You know, he, he definitely became your dad by the, you know, uh, by the mid-'80s, which, you know, that was his age. So that's perfectly uh, yeah, no. understandable. But – it, it, it's very funny to you know obviously we all get older we all we all change you know um but uh it, it is very these two images are a very stark, stark contrast it, it very much is it is like in the aba like we you know, the photos we do have in the aba we've seen it you know he has the big giant blowout afro and then even by 78 
is like second year of the NBA, the Afro's already starting to get cut down. You're just like, oh man. And then by 81 and 82, it's not even an Afro anymore. He just has like, his hair is just not buzz cut anymore. It's just like he has a nice little head of hair. And then by 86 and 87, you start to see the, the salt and pepper look starting to come in. It's just like, oh man, Dr. J's turned into our dad. It's just, <laughs> <laughs> he, he was still getting up and making these dunks, but it's like, he just looks like a dad off the court. And like the eighties didn't help. They had like those big giant telescopes, telescope glasses. So yeah, it's like Doc. Yeah, Doc, you went from like the fur coats in '75, like the big giant glasses in '86. It was just like, man. Yeah, I feel like he was wearing those sweaters too. You know, he's wearing those '80s uh, the sweaters. Yeah, the Cosby sweaters. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we didn't we decide to call them Bill Russell sweaters. Oh, you did. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I thought you did actually, but I don't know. But whoever said it, we shouldn't call it Cosby sweaters anymore. He he wore conservative '80s sweaters. Yes, so. <laughs> exactly. So. <laughs> Colorful, uh, colorful, the conservative 80s sweater. So, and, you know, this, uh, you know, we're all multifaceted, but, you know, his personality also was, uh, you know, he, he talked about in his autobiography, just loving structure and order. He, he needed things to be neat. Um, he was not really a guy who was involved in, you know, politics or, or the, you know, the, the black power movement in the seventies. He was more of a, a guy who just wanted, you know, just to accommodate people and you know, be on his team. I mean, he, he was a, you know, um, he did believe in those in ideals, but he wasn't necessarily a guy who did much participating in it. Uh, he was also very much, you know, very team oriented. Went out of his way to to blend in with a team and listen to his coach, even sometimes to the possible detriment of his team. Also, very serious off the court, not into drugs and partying, and and focused a lot, especially in the eighties, on making money, establishing his businesses, what we would call today his brand, and. Um, you know, once the, the once the ABA merged with the NBA, he obviously became part of that establishment. And, you know, through the 70s and into the 80s, his look became more part of the establishment, although you can certainly argue the establishment came closer to him. And you know, looking yep. at what the NBA was in 77 versus 84, contrasting the 76 dunk contest, which is kind of the last great um, famous moment of the ABA. And then he he's in the finals. uh uh, keying a 20-point uh, comeback in uh, Game Six of the Finals to lead his team, the Nets, beating the Rockets in that or the Nuggets in that uh, uh, Finals. Contrasting the 76, his final moments there, the Duck Contest with the 84 Dunk Contest, it's very much an NBA event and very much what was going on in the NBA at the time. But it's still the NBA co-opting the spirit of the ABA for that Dunk Contest and Dr. J reprising his famous you know, free throw line dunk and, and doing a pretty, you know, a uh, good job of, uh, you know, pulling off that dunk eight, eight years later, even though, you know, he's in his early thirties at that point. Yeah. No, no, he did do the dunk. It was legit. Yeah. Like. <laughs> yeah. And it still looked graceful and still looked, you know, like an incredible thing to see even today. You know, it's even, even uh, empowering even today, even with all the dunks that we've seen and all, you know, the increased athleticism in the league and, you know, 30 plus years since this, um, you know, it's I mean, still, it's still a great thing to see. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he was 33 years old dunking from the free throw line. Yeah. So um, none, none, definitely nothing to sneeze at, but uh, I think you, you were hitting a lot of nails on the head there. Uh, like the NBA uh, co-opting a lot of the ABA spirit. Um so, you know, going back to like, you know, the late 60s, early 70s, the NBA was just like, oh, the NBA is a gimmick. They got that red, the, the uh, red, white, and blue ball, the three-point line. They don't play any defense and uh, yada, yada, yada. And they're, now they're undermining the whole financial structure of pro basketball. because like giving high schoolers and, you know, one-year college uh, players contracts. 
And then, you know, by the mid-80s, the NBA's copying all of it. You know, they got the, the three-point line in the NBA, three-point contest, the dunk contest. Um, so I, I think it's a great story showing of how, you know, you can fear or, you know, denigrate, like, these new ideas or these, uh, you know, these, yeah, just new ideas. But then you try to, you, do, you soon start trying to figure out, well, if people do like the idea, how can we actually take advantage of it, like kind of harness it? I think that's a good phrase to use. Like, how do we harness uh, what this new thing is? Because we're a little afraid of it, but people are intrigued by it. So we got to harness it and use it for our own purposes. And Dr. J, you know, as we talked about, he's still, you know, dunking from the free throw line in his 30s. But you can see, like, his style of play, you know, had moved, I guess, the NBA center a little bit more towards his style of play. But you can also see how definitely he was – or his style of play was harnessed by the NBA toward, I guess you can say, like a higher purpose from their regard, of, you know, of uh, expanding the game's reach and making it more commercial and more popular with the fans. Um, and Dr. J was a good vehicle for that, too, because as you were saying, he, he was a guy that, you know, deferred to the coach, deferred or, you know, accommodated teammates – uh, didn't dabble into cocaine and all that stuff that was really giving the NBA an image problem back then. Whereas a guy like David Thompson, who was every bit as exciting as Julius Irving, you know, he did succumb to the to the cocaine problems like many other players did. Um, so Julius was a success story in that regard, and um, that's why I think he stands out as like the premier ABA player. Uh, was the fact that you know he did survive and have a lengthy career in the NBA, and um, you know didn't. Didn't push back too hard against being um, co-opted by the NBA, I would say, um, in some regards. Yeah, and he he definitely straddled those two worlds of the, that, that you know of this being this great artist and being this you know incredible transcendent force while also being this um, uh, you know being the businessman and being the the guy who just you you know who went along and um, you know kind of went with the trends of the league and you know. Um, made his way in that world and made his way with a, you know, a, a new team in a new league and uh, you know, played the game, so to speak. Yeah. And it's something else um, that I just remember. It's like, uh, I watched an old interview of Dr. J and this is, I mean, this is from like 1974 or 75. Um, and he was talking about one of his, I think it was his high school coach at the time. And his high school coach was, uh, or Julius in 75 was recalling his high school coach. So I guess it's like in the late sixties, um, telling him, you know, like Julius, if you want to, like, what do you want in your life? And Julius was like, you know, I want to be successful. And the coach said, well, if you want to be successful, you gotta, this is America. And like, you know, people who work hard and you know, like, you know, hone their talent. We have a system that allows people like that to be successful. And so even though Julius had like this outlandish talent that, you know, very few people have, like this very creative talent, he still viewed that the way to to make the most of that talent was to go through like the established, as best as he could, the established route of America, which was, you know, the the old idea of, you know, working hard, making the most of your talent, um, you know, not obeying, but, you know, deferring to, you know, the authority in the situation because, you know, that will eventually get you a step up to maybe one day you become the authority, uh, that your example is the one that people follow in the future. So, uh, yeah, he's a curious mix of being like, you know, a little bit of a renegade, but more so a, a deferential character. Yes. Uh, to, to, to get to get ahead. And that's not, 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 trying to say, not trying to say any of that like in a bad way necessarily, but it is just the way that he was. That's how he viewed it. Like that's what he said in that interview in 75. Like, you know, this was this is what I was told and this is what I followed. Uh, he's like, you know, the success, the success he had at that point, he attributed to following the kind of the guidelines set out by his high school coach. Yeah, and as much of a renegade that he was, he was not interested in challenging authority. That was one thing he did yeah. not want to do. And 
he uh, one thing is that you know he was not like he was a very good high school player and, and but he was not you know, heavily recruited he was he didn't really grow into the player that he would become uh, until he was in college and so he didn't have the same sort a lot of players you know had been fawned over for um you, you know since, since they were fairly young he didn't necessarily have that he was a bit of a late bloomer as a player so that probably helped him have a little bit more perspective than you know than other guys might have had in that situation so he debuts with the Sixers in actually a, a day before he joins the team a day before the season opener yeah. he had had a holdout with the Nets um before then trying to renegotiate his contract the Nets a, a, as the other ABA teams had just been uh, had just joined the ABA they all had to pay a significant amount of money to get into the league and the Nets had to pay a bunch of extra money to um because they were in the same territory as the Knicks. Yeah, even though the Nets have been around since like, you know, 68, they're like, no, nah, you're quote unquote a new franchise inv- invading their territory. So you got to pay like a million dollar penalty. Right. So. And they'd also uh, acquired uh, Tiny Archibald and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and paying him a significant contract as, as well. So they, they couldn't keep um, Irving as well, especially for the money that he was going to be um, due uh, with a new contract. So uh, ended up um, negotiating with the Sixers who um, had uh, his ABA rival, George McGinnis, there, uh, making sure that he's OK with it. Eventually, they do make the deal, even though it, it hurts him to leave the Nets, who he had won two championships with, with in the previous three seasons. But the um, Sixers are a very good team at that point. They had gone from nine and 73 uh, three years before that to a 46 win team behind the uh, but McGinnis, also Doug Collins, uh, Steve Mix, and Billy Cunningham, who was just about to retire. And so this was a you know a, a team on the rise. And in 77, they were a 50-win team, which was tied for second in the league. This is the, the time in which the a uh, lot of parity where the high records are not very high and the low records are not very low. And we're third in the uh, league in uh, SRS. Yeah, and of course, um, that 77 team, you know, has the famous or infamous finals against the Blazers. And uh, yeah, we have mentioned this before uh, about just uh, all the coded language that went into that final series. It's, it's a doozy. Um, But that Sixers team kind of set the template for what the late 76ers would be, where they would have this really, really good team that lost a nail biter in the playoffs. Um, so the 77 squad, as I said, they go against the Blazers. Uh, they take a 2-0 series lead, and then they lose the next four games, even though Julius had a just absolutely fantastic, monstrous series. Uh, it is one of the overlooked NBA Finals performances. So um, great individual performance on his behalf, but the rest, of the, the rest of the team really let him down, I would say, in that series. But Julius being Julius, I don't think he would ever say publicly, like, you know, oh, the rest of the team let me down. Like, that's, that just wouldn't be his style. Um, but I would say the, other, the rest of the teammates did let him down, whereas the Blazers were just, you know, well-oiled machine. Everybody pulled their their, their weight that they were supposed to pull, um, and they, they came out on top in that series. Yeah, and Irving in that series had uh, 30.3 points, 6.8 rebounds, 5 assists, 2.7 steals, and 1.2 blocks in um, and shot uh, 40, 54% from the field. So uh, excellent numbers there. Uh, McGinnis really stood out as he shot uh, 38% from the field, uh, 13 points, 9.3 rebounds, um, and uh, and was known for a high turnover uh, player as well. I, I, the turnovers that aren't in this box score, but I would imagine that they were uh, high. Like, given. They, they, 
Yeah. The very next season, they finally began recording turnovers, and yeah, McGinnis was turning them over like hotcakes. That's but, uh, right. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So th- there was sort of a mix of his adjustment to the team was a little bit tough. Uh, Gene Chu had a you know it was intended to be a you know they had a lot of guys who who needed to eat so to speak. I mean they had a lot of gunners. Uh, you know, World Be Free, uh, Joe Bryant, McGinnis. You know, even even Collins, who was a um, you know had been a number one overall draft pick, uh, was talented shooting guard, had a lot of foot problems, so injuries kind of kept him from reaching his potential. But a lot of guys who who you know who needed the ball, so the idea was more for him to sort of fit in rather than the team to sort of be centered around him. And they had so much talent that, you know, there was a, um, there was some justification for maybe thinking that way. Um, And uh, he later referred to this as the team that won't shut up. Just a a lot of, a a mix of of interesting personalities and a lot of guys who uh, were talented, but may have been, um, not necessarily out for themselves because they, they did have pretty good camaraderie, but. um, Yeah, it's just not the work. It's like, you know, just people you get along with in terms of like, you know, socializing and then it's people you get along with in terms of working. And, you know, in, ter- in the NBA sense, this is work for them. So, like, you know, if your personalities and demeanors don't work on the court, then, well, you're not going to be as successful as you can be. So, you know, maybe they, they get along. Nobody hated each other necessarily. But, you know, in terms of a basketball sense, their personalities didn't fit quite well. Neither, neither did their games. Um, it was an awkward pairing. And that's what happens, you know, when you just – two leagues merge and players are going every which way. You're just going to get some awkward fits uh, at that point. Sure, sure. And, you know, one series that isn't talked about but I think is sort of interesting in a story uh, a narrative idea is the East Semis. They they beat the Celtics four games yep. to three. That was the uh, that, that was the year after the Celtics had won the championship. They still had JoJo White. Havlicek was, yeah, I think, 37 at that point, so he, he's getting near the end of his career. He'd have one more season. Uh, and they had Cowins, Charlie Scott. They'd also added Sidney Wicks, uh, speaking of chemistry issues. Um, <laughs> yep. <laughs> but you know they you know they dethroned the you know the the establishment of the old guard the Boston Celtics you know the team that Red Arbach who hated the ABA wanted nothing to do with the ABA um, denigrated it as often as he could uh, you know they they were the team that this, this you know this team of playground chuckers um, you know uh, beat the vaunted Boston Celtics uh, just sort of interesting story I, I guess it, this gets obscured in the other you know Boston versus Philly legend but I I, I find it interesting that. Uh, not really talked about in terms of this rivalry. Yeah, but it's it's late seventies NBA. Nothing happened except the Bill Walton Blazers at yeah, that point. Yeah. So there, there you go. And, <laughs> and they also had, went through uh, Houston in that yeah. uh, series, uh, who had Calvin Murphy, Rutam Janovich, a very young Moses Malone, and uh, John Lucas, who was a who had been a number one overall draft pick, and uh, actually the. End of the series was a controversial charging call in Game Six. Uh, Lucas was called for an offensive foul on uh, Doug Collins. This was in Houston, um, a, a situation where the if the refs were going to lean one way, they would normally lead toward the home team, but uh, but the road team got it and they were able to uh, win that series. But that sort of uh, was the, the the end of no, not the end, but a very promising Houston team ended up um, being scuttled the next year with the Richard Jovanovich fight and uh, later losing John Lucas, you know, to, for. Uh, because they acquired Rick Barry. So, um, yeah, not a great trade. Yeah, uh. right. So, um, so moving on to 78, they're still a strong regular season team, 55 wins, uh, second in the league in SRS. 
uh, pretty much the same team except for uh, Billy Cunningham becomes the coach uh, six games in the season. Shu uh, is fired. Um, and, and Cunningham, you know, Shu was more of like, we need to rely on the playbook and we, you know, and we need to kind of rely on our plan where uh, Cunningham was more of an emotional character and was more, you know, um, Irving said in his book that he more adjusted to the game rather than is kind of doggedly sticking yeah. toward a uh, toward a game plan. Also, they had uh, Chuck Daly as the assistant. Of course, we all know what you know what a brilliant coach Chuck Daly would end up being later on with the Pistons. Yeah, now, now you you kind of got it right with the description of the the head of coaches. You know, Cunningham, as you said, adjusts to the game. He sees what's happening. He tries to tailor. To tailor to tailor himself to the situation. Whereas Gene Shue was like, I know what we need to do. The game's not going right. We just need to try to fit the game into what we need to do. You know, trying to fit the the round peg into the square hole. Um and and the team did get off to a a, a really bit of a rough start with Gene Shue. And then Cunningham comes in and I think I, I've read in some places where Cunningham was kind of basically just lobbying for the job and undermining Gene Chu. So yeah, I know Gene Chu. That, 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 that didn't play too well. Uh, looking back on it, but Cunningham did take him to higher success, like in, eventually. But uh, the first year, you really can't say it was a better success than having Gene Chu as coaches. They lost a round earlier, um, but still in heartbreaking fashion, as was typical in the late seventies for the Seventy Sixers. Yeah, they um, after sweeping a uh, the the Knicks in the uh, semis with Bob McAdoo, Spencer Haywood, Jim McMillan as well. I know one of your favorites, uh, Earl Monroe, kind of at the end there. Um, then they were upset by a forty four win uh, Bullets team that um, uh, that would later win in the uh, that would later win the finals in the Eastern Conference Finals. Uh, they had um, Elvin Hayes, Bob Dandridge, uh, Kevin Grevy, uh, Wes Unsell still with the team, although he actually missed uh, three games of that series, presumably with uh, injury. But yeah, they lost uh, that final game in heartbreaking fashion, one hundred one to um, to ninety nine. Um, anything specific about that series that you recall that stands out? No, no. Unfortunately, I've never been able to see any film of the series. Like I would love to get my hands on it, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, no. It's just just. In the scheme of things, it's like, well, here's the, the the vaunted Sixers with all that talent, and then they get upset once again, uh, taken down by a team or by a franchise that has seemed to be more of a team, uh, players that play better together. Like, uh, you know, Unsell missed half that series, but, you know, in the, in the, the wider scheme of things, you know, Unsell, Hayes, Dandridge, uh, Grevy, you mentioned, uh, Mitch Kupchak, Greg Ballard. These were guys, you know, you, you had a couple of star players, but you had a lot of guys that kind of fit into their roles and they knew their roles and they played to their roles, whereas the Sixers still had all those voices going on, uh, <laughs> so to speak. So you yeah. still had McGinnis and, um, and uh, Dr. J with that awkward fit where I think by this point they realized, like, yeah, this just the, – the two just don't, don't work well because not that they didn't like each other, but it's just that McGinnis for some reason had this – this weird complex, like not inferiority complex, but like uh, an idea that if he wasn't the, I guess like the unqualified, like go-to person on offense, then he had a hard time, you know, being effective on offense. Uh, and if like Julius Irving is there, he's clearly like the better all-around player by that point. McGinnis kind of just shrank into the background. It really didn't assert himself. Um, yeah. So yeah, uh, then of course that all season comes a big trade that really rejuvenates the 76ers in the long run. 
Yeah, and, and one thing that um, one thing that Irvin said about McGinnis playing with McGinnis is that it, you know it, it forced him to play away from the basket a lot more, and um, right. he wasn't able to you know shoot as effectively from the field because of that. And his numbers were down, uh, you know, qu- quite a bit in you know his first th- a decent amount in his first three years in the league before you know eventually in eighty he uh, breaks through and then and then wins the MVP in eighty one. Um, I mean, he, he was still an effective player, but wasn't quite. Yeah. It was definitely a step down from his ABA days. Um, yeah, 79, you, as you mentioned, the trade. Um, McGinnis is traded for uh, Bobby Jones. Uh, I know one of your favorite players. Uh, Absolutely one of my favorite players. Love Bobby Jones. Yeah. Um, and, and and Jones had battled with Irving in the 76 finals. Had tried to defend Irving, although Irving was awesome in that uh, finals. And um, also... Uh, um, uh, Will be free was traded to the Clippers, and okay. uh, Maurice Cheeks was drafted as well. And uh, these were moves that, that sort of started to change the tenor of the team. They, they, they definitely dropped in the regular season this year, uh, forty-seven and thirty-five in the season, uh, tied for sixth in the league with three other teams for that record, and then ninth in the league in SRS. So, so down in the uh, regular season, and uh, had similar playoff success, but. Um, uh, but uh, obviously better times were uh, coming with the uh, sort of with, with this new crew. Yeah. And I think what we see here is the team transitioning from this hodgepodge, you know, they, uh, let's put it this way in 76 or for the 77 season, the team didn't foresee that the ABA was going to collapse and that the leagues were going to merge and they're going to have access to all this talent. So the team they had been building before that, was kind of going toward a different destination. And then all of a sudden, Julius Irving falls in their lap before the right, like literally, as you said, the day before the 77 season starts. So, yeah, they had that success, but the team they had wasn't necessarily constructed to work together. Uh, they just kind of fell into it. Uh, whereas with the 79 team, uh, they finally decided, okay, Julius is going to be the man. What kind of team can we build around him that's going to maximize his talent and have the players around him be maximized? So, you see them getting rid of George McGinnis, who was, you know, uh, a more creative offensive player than Bobby Jones. But Bobby Jones, whatever shots he took, he was going to make. And he's not a guy that needed the ball in his hands uh, to be effective on offense or to feel to feel effective on offense. Um, and, of course, was a much better defensive player than George McGinnis. And then, as you say, you know, drafting Maurice Cheeks. There's a point guard that's going to play dead, a hard-nosed defense, was going to be able to distribute the ball and didn't need a shot either, but could make a shot if he, if he was given the opportunity. So this kind of gave Julius and Doug Collins, like, they were the guys that were going to score the ball on offense. Um, everybody else was going to kind of fill in the roles properly. Still had the knucklehead in Daryl Dawkins, but for the most part, the team is the team is starting to feel more like Julius's team, a team that's going to flow around him better. Um, so still, still had that heartbreaking loss in this, this uh, playoff series against the San Antonio Spurs. Um, although the Spurs almost blew this one, too, though. Uh, they were up three games to one, and they blew it almost to the 76ers. Yeah, and, 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 then, and then they did it in the next round. They they blew another three one series lead and actually lost it to the Bullets uh, in the conference finals. Right, and that is <clears throat> that Spurs team. You know, had uh, Gervin, uh, Larry Kennan, um, uh, Billy Paltz, and Mike Gale, who all had been uh, previously been Doc's teammates. Yes, uh, James Silas as well on the team. Um, the, the only one of those. Those are basically you know. Um, five of their main players on that team all had been, you know, four of them had been um, teammates with him. So I thought that was interesting. They also beat the Nets in the first round, of course, uh, Doc's former team and with Super John Williamson really being the last key net from Doc's days being on that team. So, you know, two years later, that that team is almost completely broken up. And just one other thing about that, uh, 
you know, looking at the Spurs and the 76ers rosters, you, you see, like, the effect the ABA had because, you know, the Spurs are an ABA team that had joined the NBA. And all the players you mentioned, you know, Gervin, Keenan, Silas, Gale, Paltz, those were, you know, five of the six main players of the Spurs. And they were all people that came out of the ABA. And then they had Louis Dampier on the bench, too. Still, at that point, although Dampier was at the end of his career. Uh, but you can see at that point, like the Spurs were the, uh, you know, one of the premier teams in the NBA and they were stocked with all ABA talent. So you see like the NBA is, you know, they've harnessed it. Like their, their best teams are now teams that are stacked with the, the old ABA talent at this point. So moving on to the 1980 season, uh, the, uh, bounce back 59 wins third in the league. They have the fourth uh, best SRS in the league. Uh, they bring back a lot of guys, but obviously Maurice Cheeks is coming into his own in his second season and was not afraid to uh, throw the uh, ball to a uh, doc. Even at the, uh, even with Billy Cunningham told him to run a play, uh, he would ask, uh, you know, why are you throwing a doc? And then his, and then Cheeks' response was just because he asked me to. So he definitely knew <laughs> where his uh, bread was buttered and, uh, really became one of the, one of the, uh, you know, better point guards of the eighties. I mean, re- isn't really, um, you know, held in necessarily in, in, that high of esteem, but really, you know, you, you look at his numbers in the eighties and of course, you know, the performance of the Sixers for most of that decade. And it's, it's really good stuff. Um, so they had added, they added Clint Richardson to the team as well. And they traded for one, the, their big acquisition probably was their midseason trade for Lionel Hollins from the yep. Blazers after they had gone after Pete Maravich, uh, who had been finally cut by the jazz, but Maravich decided to go with the Celtics instead. Yeah. Better choice to go after Lionel Hollins at that point in yes. the, the players' respective careers, but not that Hollins lasted much longer either, unfortunately, because uh, of injury. But uh, a, a better fit for what they were looking for at that point. Um, and Clint Richardson, an unheralded guy, he's he's a little bit like Mo Cheeks, where he's one of those players that on offense didn't need the ball in his hands, but played you know pressure defense on the ball. And uh, he would he would come up big in the '83 uh, season when they finally won a championship. So uh, you see them adding these little players you know, stocking the bench with the right kind of guys, you know, quote unquote, the right kind of guys uh, to play with Julius Irving. Um, And yeah, as you mentioned, the team took a huge leap forward in 1980. Uh, I guess it just felt like Julius, like, you know, finally had like the right kind of team around him in the NBA finally after like three years of waiting. Um, And his scoring average jumped up considerably, uh, was named the MVP of the season uh, of the NBA that season. Uh, and, they, and they really, they, they tore through the playoffs until they got to the finals against the Lakers. And, you know, when you go against Kareem and Magic, you're going to have some trouble. But uh, they, they tore apart the Eastern Conference up until that point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they they, they ran through the uh, bullets in the first round uh, 2-0 uh, in the miniseries. Um, Hayes and Unseld uh, but were, of course, th- still there, but they were aging. And I think Hayes was just about out. Uh, they yeah, lost and, Cup- and Dandridge was hurt that year, too. Okay, uh, yeah, and so. they had lost Cupcheck to the uh, Lakers as well. So, um, so we're, we're a thinner team. Uh, then they beat the Hawks in the uh, semis four games to one who had uh, Dan Roundfield, John Drew, uh, fast Eddie Johnson, not not the Eddie Johnson for the Suns, but the uh, other Eddie Johnson who got in serious legal trouble. Yes, and, yes, uh, convicted Eddie Johnson. Yes, <laughs> there you go. And uh, Ed Tree Rollins as well. Um, and then they... Uh, they beat the Celtics, who were the other emerging team of 1980. Uh, four games to one in a surprisingly 
reasonably easy fashion in the Eastern Conference Finals. Uh, they had won 61 games and had the uh, the best SRS in the league. Uh, of course, Larry Bird's rookie year, they still had Dave Cowens, who was, who was about at the end there. Uh, uh, Cornbread Maxwell, uh, Tiny uh, Archibald, who they had picked up, and then and Pete Maravich, who they had, who was coming off the bench. Um, I, I guess, you know, from what I've read, they really relied maybe a little bit too much on Bird in that series and just didn't, you know, kind of, you know, spread things out with the uh, system. But the uh, Sixers obviously were a strong team as well and were able to uh, restart a great rivalry that would last through, you know, most of the uh, the rest of the, you know, particularly the early part of the 80s. Yeah, yeah, rivalry that really went through like 85 and 86. So it was, it was, it was a pretty tough one, uh, right? Almost they, they, the Sixers were much better than we remember. Uh, like, if you think of the 80s as the Lakers and Celtics, but, you know, forget the first half of the decade, the Sixers were the, when you look, actually look at the records and stuff, they were the, not by a lot, but they were the dominant team in the East uh, during the first half of the 80s. But, sure, yeah. But, but anyways, that's what we're talking about, how dominant they were, so... <laughs> Uh, so the the Lakers uh, they, they would lose to the Lakers. Uh, of course, the other big story of that season: Magic Johnson as as a rookie, uh, leading the Lakers to the finals in the championship. And famously, Game Six, he would uh, have you know, a transcendent performance for the ages in um, leading them to a championship without Kareem in that game. Uh, Jamal Wilkes also uh, scoring thirty seven in that uh, game um, to um, to uh, to to beat the Sixers that year. Um, so 81, um, they get even better. They're uh, 62 and 20 tied for the best league, best record in the league, uh, very close to the same record as the Celtics and the uh, Bucks that year, all, uh, powerhouses in the Eastern conference. The uh, Bucks had just moved to the Eastern conference. Um, Andrew Tony was added to the uh, team in 81. who was kind of the other really key, you know, young addition that added to the team. Kind of, kind of another, you know, great draft that, you know, he, Pat Williams did a really good job. The, uh, the famous general manager who, uh, of, you know, building the team around doc and, you know, keeping them a contender for, you know, the next half decade. Yeah. And, and by this point, this is when Doug Collins, foot problems really, you know, caused him basically to retire. Um, so, yeah, they got Andrew Tony at the right time, like this young shooting guard to replace Doug Collins, who unfortunately should have been, you know, just at, just at the peak of his career. His career was actually coming to an end because of those foot problems. But um, the Sixers, you know, as you said, they, they were right there with the Celtics and Bucks. And I think the <laughs> oh, got the poor Milwaukee Bucks, uh, but <laughs> yeah, they couldn't catch a break in the 80s. Um, but the playoff series, uh, the Sixers played the Bucks first. That series went seven games, and the Sixers won by one point in Game Seven. And then in the conference finals, the Sixers take the Celtics to seven games, but they lost to the Celtics by one point. So that just shows you how close all three of those teams were that season, where you had two Game Sevens between them, and they're decided by two points total. Um, so. And, and, basically, you're, you're, basically, you're flipping a coin. And you have the Eastern Conference champion that season between those three teams, right? And the um, and of course, you know, one uh, bad thing for the the Sixers is that uh, this, with the Celtics winning the series, um, blowing that three one lead, they faced the Rockets in the finals, who were, were a much easier opponent for uh-huh. the, than, than the Lakers. The Lakers were a little, little down that year, but you know, then the Lakers teams that the Sixers would always bump into. You know, the the Celtics did benefit from some luck in a lot of weirdness in the Western Conference playoffs that season. 
Um, the uh, the Celtics fans uh, tried to tip over the bus after the uh, the Game 7 loss, which, of course, the Sixers players uh, appreciated. So, uh, <laughs> and, and, and Irving, you know, he, he in his autobiography, he said nice things about basically everyone, but the one, one group of people that he did not say nice things about were the uh, Celtic fans. Well, I mean... That's not surprising. No. That's, <laughs> if anybody, if anybody's going to get on Julius's nerves, it would be Celtics fans. So, yes. so as, as, yeah. as nice and affable a man as he is, the Celtics fans would annoy him. Yes, yes. So, um, 82, they are still very good, 58 and uh, 24, uh, second in the league, in the, in the record, also second in the league in SRS. Um a pretty similar team, uh, really. Yeah, pretty almost exactly the uh, same team. They um, they buzzed through the uh, they beat the Bucks at four games to two. A little bit of an easier time uh, beating them, although still a tough series. And then they beat the uh, Celtics uh, four games to three in the Eastern Conference Finals, almost blowing another three uh, one yep. lead, but pulling off a victory in uh, Game Seven. Um, and there's after their game six loss, um, Doc called a team meeting and they try to figure out like, OK, what's going on? What can we do? And then uh, Clint Richardson uh, says, says it's just us. And then they start sort of chanting it's just us like as a, a mantra for the team. Like, you know, we're, we're going to do this. It's just us. You know, we, we believe in everything. You know, we believe in ourselves and believing, a, you know, we can beat the world. And then the next day in the locker room, someone had um taped up all these letters on the wall of fans who believed in the team and all these kind words of, you know, we believe in you. We think you can do it. And that inspired the, t- the win even more than the other approach had and uh, led to the um, uh, led to the Sixers winning a game seven in Boston and actually Boston uh, t- fans chanting beat L.A. to the uh, to the Sixers in that game, which, you know, for for the negatives we, he might have had for Boston fans, that was certainly a, a moment that he appreciated. Oh, yes, for that one moment, they they, they weren't assholes to him. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> they, they were assholes to L.A. That's, that's what that one shining moment. Yes, um, yeah, indeed. So <laughs> the um, it's interesting because, of course, they the Celtics really had no reason to hate L.A. at that point because, you know, they had beaten L.A. every time they'd ever face each other in the uh, playoffs. So there was yeah, no, that's true. Uh, the, yep. that animosity that would come later when the Lakers started winning, you know, theoretically should not have been there. But um, but whatever, you know. Uh, but a, a similar result in to the 80 finals, they would lose exactly the same number of games, uh, four games to two. The uh, the the Lakers bolstered with the addition of Bob McAdoo. Yeah, this one was a little unfair because the the Sixers their they, their big problem was obviously they they rectified the problem in the offseason, but the big problem was still at center where you still had Daryl Dawkins hold down the fort at center. Um, and Caldwell Jones by this point had usurped him in playing time, but. Caldwell, uh, great defensive center, but shouldn't have been getting, you know, 30 minutes a game. Uh, definitely a, you know, 20, 22 minute a game backup center. Uh, so Cream was just feasting on them. And so was Bob McAdoo, as you mentioned. He was picked up and God, like, I'm looking at the stats in front of me. The Lakers had um, six players average between 13 and 20 points a game that series. So they were, they were just spreading the wealth and uh, having no problem going through the Philly defense. They they definitely um, uh, yeah, beat them pretty soundly inside. That was definitely the key to the uh, series. And um, after the uh, after the loss, um, 
he, Irving said that he cried in the locker room for the first time in his career, you know, saying there has to be a reason this keeps happening because obviously he's been in the league now for um, uh, for six years and it has not been able to win a, a championship in the uh, NBA. And there's a lot of pressure uh, for him. You know, th- there is this, th- they did have narratives back then and there is definitely this belief that, okay, yeah, he won those championships in the ABA, but he hasn't won a championship in the real league yet. And there, yeah. he definitely, you know, conceded to, you know, being frustrated by by that and feeling the pressure to, you know, bring a championship to the team. Of course, he had a lot of personal pride as well, just wanted to win a championship for himself, but that was, you know, definitely a factor in things as well. And just to pause for at this moment, you brought up a good point. Um, Julius is very defensive of the ABA. Um, like, you look at his Twitter handle, or is it, yeah, the, uh, his Twitter description, excuse me. Uh, his Twitter description says, like, you know, he's a four-time MVP, three-time champion. So in his mind, he doesn't view the ABA as inferior whatsoever to the NBA. Because um, obviously to do so for him would be to, you know, devalue what he did as a player for like the first six years of his career. Um, and he sticks up for the other guys. So he sticks up for George Gervin, for James Silas, for Ron Boone, all those other guys that don't, don't get uh, as much attention as they should from their ABA playing days. Uh, so for him, he's, he's very prideful of the ABA, even though it was like the renegade league. And we've been talking about how he himself wasn't much of a renegade. He still values the hard work that was put in by the players in the ABA. Um, so maybe it was a different sort of league. Maybe it was a little rough and tumble. Maybe it was a renegade league. But he he believes that the league, like, well, it seems to me that he believes the league was filled with guys who played hard, who worked hard, who contributed a lot, and their contribution shouldn't be diminished. So um, it's not the least bit surprising that, you know, that narrative would annoy him in the early 80s. We're like, yeah, he's won two titles, but they weren't real titles. They were in the ABA. When's he going to do it in the real league? And um, sure enough, 83, they get Moses Malone and um, another another ABA-turned-NBA star, and they uh, they barnstormed the league. They tear it apart. Yeah, absolutely. They uh, they finished 65 and 17. Um, start 15 and 7. They, they uh, were, were threatening to win 70, but they sort of slowed. They, they took the foot off the gas pedal in the last you know, few weeks of the season and, and um, you know, finished 15 and 10. Um, but they that that did not hurt them at all in the uh, playoffs. They uh, the the Moses's fo 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 um prediction or whatever you might consider it uh, almost came true. They beat the Knicks in the East uh, semifinals. Uh, Bernard King, Truck Robinson, and uh, Paul Westfall team. Then they beat the Bucks uh, four games to one in the East Conference Finals. Their only loss in that uh, series, and then um. Storm through the Lakers. I, I do want to go back, to, though, because I, I thought it was interesting about how um, uh, about how Doc learned about the trades. First, it was a trade of Daryl Dawkins to the Nets, and he didn't know what the team was doing. He was in China, touring China at the time. Uh, ML Carr was there, who was a, um, a a Celtics player who was you know basically coming off the bench, basically known for sort of waving the towel in the uh, oh, yeah, mid eighties. But he was a good player, you know, in his day, um, mm. and had started off in the ABA. So Moses would make fun of him of like you know what what have they turned you into? What have the Celtics turned you into? You're this towel waving guy, and you know they would they would kind of bust each other, being you know old friends uh, from the ABA. And then, um, and then when the the first trade went down, you know, Carr's making fun of him. It's like, oh, you know, you guys, you, you guys, there's no way you guys are going to win anymore. You just traded away, you, you know, your your only good big man. And then later, you know, reasonably soon later, they would find out about Moses, and then he would say, you know, hey, you guys just won the title. And um, and, and he, he, Moses came in, and uh, they were able to. I think he was able to work really well 
blend really well with Doc as far as, you know, he, he kind of made it, you know, didn't try to, like, carve his own territory. I mean, he was, like, there, like, you know, Doc's our leader, but he put in exactly the right kind of work that, you know, filled all the gaps that the team needed while letting, you know, Irving do his thing. You know, he's advanced in age at that point, but was still a very effective player, and they were able to, you know, blend together so well on the court and off the court as well. Yeah, what they what they became with Moses uh, was just a really fierce defensive team. Uh, I've gone back and watched those games. What what strikes me is like just the defensive intensity they brought, and then how that just it's almost like an intimidation of the other of the opponent. Because uh, Moses Malone wasn't a one on one; he wasn't a great defender, but clearly he was like a monster on the board. So he would just wear guys out on the boards, and everybody else on the court was either a good or just absolutely like, you know, legendary all-time defender between, you know, Julius and Maurice Cheeks and Bobby Jones and Clint Richardson. Uh, so they would just intimidate and wear out the other the other uh, team on the court. Uh, so I think that's what Moses was able to bring to us, just like this intimidation factor. And I don't mean that in like, you know, the, the stupid uh, macho sense, like, oh, we're going to like beat somebody's brains out, but just like, you you see the, the, them warming up on the other end of the court, and he's like, ah, shit, we got to play against these guys tonight. Like, they're going to run us up and down the court. Moses is going to beat us on the boards. Um, it's just not something you really get up for. It's like facing that team. Um, and they they pulverized the Lakers in the finals, although the Lakers lost uh, James Worthy to a leg injury, so that clearly didn't help them out. But uh, the Sixers just beat them to shreds in the finals. Um, they had a couple of close games, but the Sixers, I don't think it was ever in doubt that they were going to win that series. Um and yeah, Moses, I think, just provided the right amount of edge to that team uh, where he wasn't going to step on Julius's toes. They both knew that the other was a superstar, but they just realized, all right, we just got to kind of our own turfs, but we know that we can work together. And like Moses didn't come in and say, like, this is my team now. And Julius didn't say, well, this is still my team. They realized, like, it's both of our, it's, uh, the team is both of ours. Like, we need each other to make this team a success. So I think that's why they succeeded as well as they did. Yeah, and uh, the Sixers they stormed back from Lakers leads in games one and two, and able to you know won won both those games fairly handily. Um, and uh, you know, in previous situations, they would have you know, Irving talked about how they would have you know been uh, felt rattled in a similar situation if they had you know been down the Lakers, or a lot of times they would take big leads from the Lakers and then would whittle them away and then would lose their confidence. But this year, obviously, they had the talent to uh, maintain that. Um, Moses averaged twenty five point eight eighteen in the uh, finals, and Irving averaged. Uh, 19 points, 8.5 rebounds, 5 assists, 1.3 steals, and 2.8 blocks um, in uh, on 47% shooting. So a- excellent series from him and, and from Moses as well, who won the MVP of the of the league and of the uh, finals. And, um, you know, it, it's of course interesting that this is uh, two great ABA players. I mean, Irving, uh, obviously the, you know, the, the, the most famous player from the ABA Moses who began his career in the ABA and became a huge star. You know, these two guys with a coach in Billy Cunningham, also a, uh, you know, guy who had defected to the ABA. So, so these guys with these, you know, ABA ties, you know, coming together and uh, winning a championship, kind of the last gasp for that, you know, ABA era generation to be a dominant force in the league before the bird magic era would really take hold and it would be you know the 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 league would be dominated by those guys or guys who were of that age for the you know up until jordan you know took over in the um took over in the early 90s i mean yeah i mean it's passing on the guard you know it clearly happens all the time you know it's the cyclical nature of the league um 
but yeah, it's you got it. It's the culmination of like the the ABA's, um, I guess, infectious. The word I'm thinking of, yeah, like the the infection of the NBA by the ABA. Uh, you know, the MVP, the Finals MVP, the League Championship. I think Billy Cunningham was the coach of the year too that season. Like all these guys with these ABA ties. Uh, that was the first year they had the Six Man Award, and Bobby Jones won it. He was another ABA uh, guy that came out of there. So. Uh, this is really like, I guess, the, the coronation of like the ABA success and like really influencing the NBA uh, was the 83 season with the Sixers. And on top of that, when you look at Bird and Magic and the way those teams played, the Celtics and Lakers, um, it was very much an ABA style because, you know, Larry Bird was this 6'8 forward, 6'8, 6'9 forward who was taking three pointers. Like, what the hell is this about? Uh, like, that's clearly something that. You could say it's like a strain of the ABA. Then Magic, this six nine point guard, just razzle and dazzle with the passes. Like that's something else that's from the the ABA spirit. So by that point, even the players who hadn't played in the ABA were in a way influenced by the the, the freewheeling nature of the ABA. That had like just trickled down through all the basketball and had, if not directly influenced those players, uh, just by the ABA existing, it had allowed that kind of play to be acceptable uh, across the board, so to speak, uh, in professional basketball. Yeah. And, and looking at, back at that 84 dunk contest, one thing that stands out to me when you know he famously reprises that free throw line dunk and, 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 and hits it successfully is you can really see how giddy you know, Magic Johnson and Isaiah Thomas are watching fr- from the baseline. You're kind of taken back to, you know, I, as I'm sure, you know, they looked up to um, Irving, even if they weren't able to see him much, um, looked, mm-hmm. up, looked up to him as a player and, and the idea of him. And, you know, I'm cert- certainly he was a hero. Uh, I'm sure he was a hero to them. I mean, um, Magic, when he was a uh, when he when he was drafted before his rookie season, actually came to stay with Irving and, you know, Irving kind of showed him the road the league and gave him some advice about how to handle things and such so to, to see you know what the effect that he had on those guys and that generation of players who you know really um brought the league into you know the, the whole game into you know a greater um amount of success and a greater amount of esteem and fame and all that good stuff and brought the business of basketball to you know a, a whole nother level um you know it, it's interesting you know of course how these things you know stack upon one one another yeah, and um, another thing to add on to it is just, like, earlier I mentioned, like, you know, Julius is so defensive of the ABA and, like, just, you know, talks about these guys that don't get enough attention. Along those lines, you know, Moses Malone was someone who epitomized kind of the, I guess, some of the unsung nature of the ABA, uh, where you know, I just mentioned also, you know, like, Bird shoot, shooting threes and Magic being a 6'9 point guard was, like, just just – just trans like just transmogrification of the NBA by the ABA. But then you had Moses Malone, this other guy from the ABA, who was just like just the most pale male workmanlike player you can imagine. And this is another guy that came out of the ABA. So uh, so the ABA was able to influence the NBA in a number of ways where he had like the greatest offensive rebounder in basketball history came from this league that was noted for like just the freewheeling nature of its perimeter players. So um, just the ABA giving the NBA just all kinds of sustenance and you know just just things to, to market in the 80s uh the nba just benefited so much from what the aba provided um yeah really and this is for, of course 40 years after the league's merged this year so um the, the influence is still there it's still palpable in a number of ways cool in the gang is a good analogy for dr j okay because cool in the gang was really awesome in the 70s 
because they did like Jungle Boogie and Hollywood Swinging. And then by like 1986, they were doing songs like Cherish, and that song sucks. So <laughs> Not I just want to put it out there. They yeah. had some good stuff in the 80s too, but they also had some real bad crap in the 80s too. So sure. yeah. those of you who are music aficionados, I think the Cool in the Gang analogy also works for Dr. J. Yeah. I just thought of that. I, I, I do feel like Dr. J in this. I do feel like Dr. J in the seventies represents like like seventies funk, and and then in the eighties he represents more of like the. Um, like, the, it's called urban contemporary music. Yes, exactly. Uh, like, it's like Anita Baker. Right. Like yeah, that that that, that very poppy. Like you know, the, some of that's really good, and really catchy, and really interesting, but it doesn't have like the same. It, feels, it ain't got the rawness. It's very produced, you know, and then that is sort of, you know, c- kind of, you know, where, where it takes you from cool to square with Doc is where, you know, I, I guess the, as much it's, it's as much the times changed than he changed. But, you know, it's uh, it's it's been interesting to kind of look at that. So so thanks, Curtis, for um, being on the show. Uh, greatly appreciate uh, you being here. And uh, thanks, everyone, for checking us out. You can find us at harborparoxism.com. Uh, you can uh, find us on iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, we would appreciate a rating and review. That always helps people uh, find out about us and um, satisfies their egos as well, which, is, of course, is important. And you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Over and Back NBA. Uh, let us know if you're enjoying the uh, basketball mysteries of the 1970s. It's been uh, a lot of work for us. We've had a lot of great guests and a lot of uh, fun discussions, so we appreciate the people uh, letting us know if you enjoy it. And until next time, uh, thanks for listening, and we'll talk again soon. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.